Welcome to the Rapid Response RN Podcast, helping you keep your finger on the pulse of your patient's condition with real-life stories from the front lines of nursing. This podcast can help you sharpen your assessment skills, improve your ability to recognize the signs and symptoms of your patient's decline, be inspired to speak up and advocate, and know how to jump into action to promote the best outcome for your patients. Hey, everybody. I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. On today's episode, I'll be interviewing my very first guest, Yesha Patel, to hear about how she followed her intuition, advocated to save her patient's life before he went into irreversible septic shock. So before we dive into today's story, I wanted to take a minute to introduce you to our guest. Yesha, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to have you join me for today's episode. Well, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be your very first guest. So Yesha, tell me about yourself. What made you want to become a nurse in the first place? Nursing didn't come easy to me Um, since middle school. I knew I wanted to do something in the medical field, um, but I did not want to go to medical school. That was for sure. Um, Nothing against the doctors, but I just wanted to not be in school for that long. Um, So after a lot of shadowing and weighing my options, I concluded that nursing is the best option for me. It is one of the most versatile fields out there. Um, there are so many options for us nurses. We could be bedside nurses. We could be um, into teaching or education. We could be nurse practitioners and um, look into preventative care. So yeah, after being in this field for two years, today is two years ago when I found out I passed my NCLEX. Yay! So um, yeah, I feel very empowered and grateful um, every day as I care for my patients. Awesome. So two years, it's, you feel like you've been a nurse for longer than that. Tell the listeners, <laughs> what kind of unit do you work on? I work on a cardiac progressive care unit. This is actually the unit that I transitioned during my final semester of school and was hired shortly after. Awesome. So your patients are pretty sick, but not quite ICU sick, but like on the border. Of right. ICU sick. <laughs> right. So we have to be very vigilant. You know, we have patients that are pretty steady, ready for discharge sometimes, and then there are patients that are that could just turn the corner any minute. So we just have to be on top of our games. That's right. That's right. So what are your future professional goals as a nurse? Um, Currently, I'm in school for my master's. Once I finish, I'll be a nurse practitioner, fingers crossed, um, with a focus on family practice. Um, My other passion is teaching, so I just see myself teaching in the future. So um, once I get more experience as a bedside nurse, I might do teaching like part-time. Awesome. Awesome. You'd be great at that. Thank you. So tell me about your patient. What's the report that you received whenever you took over his care? So when I received this particular patient, I was told he's very confused and disoriented. He actually tried getting out of bed while we were in the middle of bedside shift report. The night nurse and I tried to reorient him and told him to get back in the bed and helped him back in the bed. Um, But he just kept asking for lactulose. I've never seen a patient (laughs) ask for lactulose. All he wanted was his lactulose, and he started getting agitated when we told him he cannot have it. Um, his vitals were not stable. His blood pressure was low. His heart rate was high. Um, the day before that he had gotten his G2 place that he had tried to pull out because of his confusion. So there was leakage around, around the G tube and his G tube was, um, having a lot of drainage coming out of it. The night nurse stated she believed the patient is getting septic and the source of infection could possibly, possibly be this newly placed G tube. According to the night nurse, the patient had received five boluses so far, and his pressure seemed stable while he was getting the bolus, but as soon as the bolus was done, he would tank again. 
His temperature was, he was cold to touch. And when we checked his temperature, it was somewhere around 96 degrees and his extremities were um, cold to touch as well. Gotcha. Sounds like sepsis to me. (laughs) So now walk us through your shift. What was your initial assessment of the patient that led you to deciding that you need to do something more than the current interventions that were being ordered? So once I took over this patient's care, I quickly realized he was getting worse than getting better. He was almost requiring um, one-to-one care, which is when I knew it was time for me to escalate his level of care. At first, I made sure I was cycling his vitals every 15 minutes to see the trend of his blood pressures. At the beginning of my shift, as I said, he was in the middle of receiving his fifth bolus. Once the bolus was done, his pressures started trending down again. They went from being in the 100 systolic, which is the top number, down to in the 80s and 70s again. Um, also, the patient was not producing enough urine. The amount of fluids we were giving him was, was not equalizing to the output in his Foley bag. I called the doctor, and they were going to order another bolus on this patient, which is when I thought we were all focused on just treating the numbers that we see on the board, and we're not really actually digging deeper into the problem. So that's when I called you, and um, you know I wanted you to come lay eyes on this patient and um, because I just had a gut feeling that whatever I'm doing is not working and it's not helping the patient, and we're just just prolonging his care by just giving him bolus and bolus. So thank you for coming and Absolutely. responding as quick as you did. I remember calling you, and you were down to lay eyes on my patient, and within 30 minutes of all that, we were rushing the patient to the ICU while I was calling report over the phone. So thank awesome. you. Awesome. Yeah, go team. That's why we call it rapid response, right? <laughs> so at our hospital, the rapid response nurses don't only come when you activate the rapid response team. You can also call them just as like a consult, you know, another set of eyes on your patient when you kind of think something's up, the vitals are concerning, but not quite, ah, yet. <laughs> so Yesha called me and essentially said, my patient's not doing so hot, his BP's a little soft, he isn't getting any better with the fluids, can you just come look at him? So when I arrived, I see a small frame, thin man, he was pale, a little diaphoretic, kind of intermittently confused, and like you said, oddly asking for lactulose constantly, <laughs> like demanding lactulose. <laughs> Maybe the only time in my career a patient actually wanted to take their lactulose, but he did not look so good. His radial pulse was thready and rapid. I want to say it was like 114. His respiratory rate was high, 30-ish, and his blood pressure at that time, because he had just finished a bolus, was 91 over 40. Mm-hmm. And I saw Yesha had the other bag of fluids the doctor had ordered. She was ready to give it, but she was like, should I give this? So Yesha, you had already contacted the doctor about the patient's blood pressure, and he ordered, like we said, another liter of fluids. So why don't you just give the liter of fluids and see if that would fix his heart rate and blood pressure? Well, at this point, the patient had already, already received five boluses, and I felt like I would be treating the number instead of looking at the situation as a whole. And the fact that the pressures were sustaining while he was receiving the bolus and then immediately tanking after the bolus was done told me that the patient required more than just that bolus of fluid. Spot on. Yeah, so I actually called the same doctor just as a courtesy to tell him that I was going to call a rapid response because the patient was not heading in the right direction. I told Yasha not to hang the additional fluids. I didn't want to hemodilute the patient. And after I called the rapid response team, I also called the ICU charge and told her I was going to need a bed for this patient. Fortunately, she had a clean room ready and said I could bring the patient as soon as the ICU doctor accepted the patient. So the ICU resident arrived very soon after. I gave him a quick synopsis of the patient. I said, pretty sure this patient's in septic shock. 
He's not improving, which by the way, we didn't mention, I think his lactic acid was like five or six, something elevated. Yeah, it was high. Um, we had given fluid resuscitation. He wasn't getting any better. And the doctor said, how many liters have you given? I was like, this is number six. And he said, <laughs> don't hang another liter of fluids. Let's start norepinephrine instead. Since we already had the clean ICU bed uh, and they stock norepinephrine on their unit, ready to go, I called them and said, hey, prep to norepi. I'm rolling with the patient. Yesha's unit is very close to the ICU, fortunately, and so it seemed faster just to hit the road, head to the ICU, than try to mix the norepinephrine myself from the crash cart. So I got Yesha calling report as I was heading down the hallway with the patient. When I arrived at the ICU, probably like three or four minutes later, the patient's blood pressure was 79 over 38. But we started norepinephrine and got the patient's blood pressure stable rather quickly. So strong work team, especially strong work Yesha, advocating for your patient. Yesha, you knew your patient was declining, and rather than just blindly following the doctor's orders, like you said, you dug a little deeper. You tapped into your resources, you advocated until your patient got what they needed. So kudos to you, my friend. So after this experience, what would you say are your big takeaways from caring for this patient? Well, this whole experience um, was a big education moment for me. I learned a lot through it. I've learned to trust my own gut and use my resources as much as I can. Um, I was able to get a deeper understanding of the topic of septic shock and how it affects our different organs of the body. I remember you educating me while we were in the middle of the rapid response as we were going, and I remember you coming back and debriefing with me um, once you transferred the patient to the ICU. Perfect. So if you were precepting, say, a newer nurse during this event, is there anything that you would want them to know or learn from this particular patient scenario? One of the biggest takeaways I would want a new nurse to take away from the situation um, would be to trust their gut and the knowledge that they have. Amen. Trust me, you know more than you think you do. Two years ago, as a brand new nurse, I would have freaked out. Um, But trusting the knowledge that I've learned so far and uh, using the resources that I have had, I was able to successfully navigate through the situation. Also, one of the biggest things new nurses are worried about is um, being on their own. Uh, once they're done through preceptorship, and I feel it, I feel like we're never on our own. There's always help. We have other nurses. We have, you know, rapid response team that's out there to help us. We just have to go um, get the right resources to help us and guide us through difficult situations like this. So yeah, you're never going to be on your own um, when you're working. Um, it's also okay to not know all the answers to the questions and to every situation. But as long as you know where to find your answers from, that's all that matters at the end of the day. That's right. That's perfect, Yisha. So I asked you to be on this show because I think you embody exactly what I want every nurse to have. You have genuine compassion for your patients. You're always eager to learn more. You aren't afraid to reach out and ask for help if your patient needs it. So I'm so honored to have you as my very first guest on this podcast Thank you so much for being a part of it. Well, thank you for having me. It was it was very fun. Thank awesome. you. <laughs> and thank you for advocating for your patient, most thank importantly. Thank you. What a great story to remind us how important the role of the nurse is. And like Yesha said, how trusting your gut and tapping into your resources can save your patient's life. So now let's break down sepsis and how it can escalate into septic shock and what treatment interventions to anticipate. For starters, sepsis, by definition, is the body's dysregulated response to infection. Prior to having ever taken any pathophysiology courses, my only exposure to sepsis was on movies. And because of the inaccurate portrayal of how sepsis treatment actually works, 
I understood it to be the body's just overtaken by this terrible bacteria that eats them alive. But if they can get that life-saving one-time dose of penicillin, they'll start waking up and get to go home the next day. If only it was that simple. In actuality, the multi-system organ failure that occurs is really just the body freaking out and overreacting to the infective source, and in the process, making things worse for itself, not better. It's kind of like when my toddler gets a little scratch and starts freaking out about it, and in the process of flailing her arms and screaming, she also falls down and sustains multiple other unnecessary injuries resulting from her reaction to the original scratch. I like to call it the septic cascade of awfulness. Now, before we dive any deeper into what that cascade actually is, let me start with a little disclaimer. There's been a lot of research and a huge push for early intervention for septic patients over the last 20 years. I could do a whole podcast on the evolution of our knowledge about sepsis, but suffice it to say, there are things that we once accepted as the standard of care that have since been debunked by new evidence And there are a lot of problems with some of the studies that we base some of our early goal-directed therapy on with the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. I'll do my best to break down some of the information that is currently agreed upon, but know that what I say today on January 31st, 2021 may be proven incorrect tomorrow and more up-to-date evidence will come available. So just because your preceptor who you adore taught it to you doesn't mean that it's up-to-date. I could personally think of several things that I've taught new nurses over the years that are no longer evidence-based, but I was sharing what I knew at the time to be true. So stay up to date. Don't get stuck in old dogma. Be eager to learn and humble enough to accept that your old way might be wrong now. Don't let your pride or ignorance get in the way of the patient's best outcome. With that being said, there are two common approaches towards recognizing sepsis both of which are pretty similar. The first is the QSOFA score, which stands for Quick Sequential Organ Failure Assessment. And the second is SERS criteria. You should document using whatever sepsis indicator that your hospital uses, but I want to address both because no matter what your hospital uses, you can assess your patient with the knowledge of both to help guide you in making the best decision for your patient. So I'll start with SERS. SIRS, or Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome, should be seen as a flag um, more than a diagnosis that needs antibiotics. If a patient meets two or more of the SIRS criteria and has a potential source of infection, they are likely septic, but not every time. SIRS criteria being, first, tachycardia, so heart beating greater than 90 beats per minute at rest. Uh, Next is fever or hypothermia. Next is tachypnea, which they define as greater than 20 breaths per minute. And finally, leukocytosis, or high white blood cell count, or leukopenia, being low white blood cell count. But y'all, if I got up from this chair and sprinted to the fridge and back, I would suddenly meet surge criteria, with my heart rate being greater than 90 and my respiratory rate probably greater than 20. So the search criteria is a wide net that sometimes catches too many patients into the sepsis diagnosis. There are more diagnostics that need to be done before we start treating every patient with a fast heart rate and fast respiratory rate with vancomycin. 
This patient, however, happened to meet all of the criteria, not just two. His heart rate was in the one teens. He was hypothermic at 96 degrees. He was breathing 30-ish times a minute, and his white blood cell count was 19,000. And he had two possible sources of infection. He had an acubitus ulcer with purulent drainage and a feeding tube with redness and drainage around the site. All of these surge criteria are signs that the body is trying to tackle the infection or that organ systems are failing from the sepsis. So let's start with white blood cell count. Your body usually makes more white blood cells to try and wipe out the infection. So an elevated WBC is a classic indicator that infections are brewing. However, sometimes folks can have a decreased white blood cell count. Decreased WBCs can be from a hematological dysfunction resulting from sepsis, which is a bad sign. With regards to body temperature, most patients will develop fever with sepsis as the body's adaptive response to try and kill off the infective agent. But about 20% of patients will surprisingly develop hypothermia. And this is actually a more concerning finding than hyperthermia. Patients who present with sepsis and low body temperature have twice the mortality of febrile septic patients. To be clear, I'm not referring to when patients have cool extremities but their core is still warm. That's also common in sepsis. I'm referencing when the core temperature is reading low as well. The febrile response is pretty well understood by the scientific community, but the exact pathophysiology behind why patients become hypothermic in the face of sepsis is debatable with much speculation. I've read several reasons, including lack of pro-inflammatory cytokines and vasodilation resulting in heat loss and the body being unable to regulate its core temperature um, in the face of poor perfusion from sepsis. The takeaway is, don't assume that just because your patient isn't febrile that they aren't septic. And don't assume that the 96 degree temperature that you just rechecked for the third time is inaccurate because it may actually be that they are that cold and this could be an indicator of their sepsis. Next is respiratory rate. I've had a few nurses ask me why their patient would be breathing so rapidly when the infective source is not pneumonia, but some other non-respiratory source. As you know, patients in septic shock have elevated lactic acid levels. The blood would naturally become acidotic due to the lactic acid production. Well, CO2 is also an acid. So the body's compensatory mechanism to help balance the pH is to breathe faster <sighs> to blow off more CO2. That's why I always take time to actually count the patient's respirations because it can tell me so much about what's going on with my patient. Obviously, use your nursing judgment. If the patient just walked with physical therapy or they're super anxious or they just vomited, yeah, they might be breathing faster from that. But if they're just laying or sitting in the bed with no good explanation for their fast breathing pattern, know that they are compensating for something, either hypoxia or trying to balance out their pH. And finally, elevated heart rate is a great early indicator of sepsis. Cardiac output is comprised of heart rate and stroke volume. I'm sure you remember that from your NCLEX. So in the body's attempt to increase cardiac output to meet the demands of the tissues, it will increase heart rate to accomplish this goal. 
resist the urge to try to treat the tachycardia from sepsis with beta blockers or calcium channel blockers, this heart rate does not need to be fixed with rate control drugs. It needs to be fixed by treating the source. So we focus our efforts towards improving stroke volume rather than slowing down the heart rate. A quick blurb about the QSOFA score because it has valuable indicators that the SIRS does not. It gives a point for each of the following findings, tachypnea, altered mentation, and hypotension. With QSOFA, they count tachypnea as a respiratory rate greater than 22 breaths per minute, so a little more specific than the SIRS criteria. Altered mentation, which is scored by Glasgow Coma Scale, anything less than 15 gets one point. Altered mental status is a valuable indicator that the brain is not getting the flow or oxygen that it needs to function. And finally, systolic blood pressure less than 100 millimeters of mercury. Low blood pressure in sepsis is mostly due to systemic vasodilation. Think about when you have a small local infection. The body vasodilates in that area to send in more fluid to the site of infection, to rinse it out, so to speak, and to send in the fighter cells to kill off the infection. So think of like your small surgical wound that gets a little infected and it gets edematous, red, maybe warm to touch from the extra blood flow in that area. Well, when the body becomes septic, it vasodilates on a systemic level to allow for more blood flow to the organs and for the macrophages to come in and fight off the infection. But systemic vasodilation with low blood pressure as the consequence actually causes decreased flow to the organs. So thanks a lot, body. You're not helping. So again, this patient met all three of the QSOFA criteria. So he would have a QSOFA score of three. A score of two or more is associated with poor outcomes due to sepsis. These scores were developed so a computer can pull the numbers and easily calculate the risk for sepsis based on the data found in the medical record. They can serve as a great tool for early identification. And while that definitely has its value, your assessment skills and intuition are far more valuable in recognizing the signs of decline in your patient. There are so many other indicators of sepsis other than those found in these tools, like skin temperature, color, capillary refill, auscultating lung sounds, heart sounds, bowel sounds, feeling for pulse quality and edema, even smelling your infected patient's, ugh, your patient's infected wound, or like the smell of C. diff that every nurse can immediately identify. You don't have to rely on a tool to calculate up your patient's risk for sepsis. You can put all the pieces together and advocate for them to get the interventions they need before the septic cascade of awfulness gets out of hand. Speaking of which, let me summarize what I mean by that. I already mentioned how the body senses the infection and vasodilates, sends in the fighter cells to break down the bacteria. Sounds great, except that vasodilation drops blood pressure. Additionally, the blood vessels become more permeable, allowing fluid to shift from within the bloodstream into the interstitial space. You might have heard this called third spacing. Now, not only do we have low blood pressure from the dilated blood vessels, but we also lost volume as fluid shifted right out of the bloodstream into the third space without even asking us. So double hit to the blood pressure. Then the heart starts beating faster, trying to compensate, but it can get so fast that the heart doesn't have enough time to fill between each squeeze. So then the combination of low volume coming into the heart and not enough good squeeze to get the blood out of the heart, you end up with low cardiac output. 
when the body senses something is up, aka decreased cardiac output, it's going to start shunting blood away from the less vital organs and towards the more vital organs being the heart, lungs, and brain. So what is the least vital organ? I'll give you a hint. It also happens to be the largest organ. If you said the skin, you are correct. So the body says, sorry, skin, I like you and all, but I don't need you as much right now. So it shunts the blood away from the skin towards the heart, lungs, and brain, leaving the skin cooler, paler, and oftentimes diaphoretic. Then if that shunting away from the skin doesn't achieve the necessary bump in cardiac output, the body says, hmm, how about the gut? Digestion seems important, but not as important as oxygenating and pumping the blood. So it shunts the blood away from the gut towards the heart and lungs. You can detect this when you listen to your patient's bowel sounds. If they are hypoactive or absent, or if the patient's complaining of nausea, this could be indicative of body shunting blood away from the gut. Then, and this is when it gets really bad, if the body is still struggling to meet the demands of the tissues, like in sepsis, then it starts shunting blood away from the kidneys and the liver, resulting in decreased or no urinary output, elevated BUN and creatinine, and for the liver, raising the liver enzymes and decreasing the body's ability to clot effectively. Remember when Yesha said one of her concerns for her patient was that he had received five liters of fluid but barely had any urine output? Yeah, he was shunting blood away from his kidneys in effort to save his heart, lungs, and brain. So this terrible process will keep going until several organs have lost flow long enough that they have irreversible damage, i.e. multi-system organ dysfunction, and the shunting is no longer adequate enough to maintain enough cardiac output to meet the demands of the cells. Toxins build up since the filter organs cannot filter. Fluid third spaces into the lungs and the patient cannot effectively exchange the gases. Uh, the heart cannot pump effectively with poor coronary perfusion. Unless major intervention happens, this patient will ultimately die. And one dose of antibiotic, like in the movies, is not going to cut it or turn this patient around. It requires close monitoring and constant intervention to get the patient out of the woods. And sometimes the inflammatory cascade is so out of hand that even the best medical and nursing care cannot prevent the patient from going into cardiac arrest from septic shock. That is why sepsis is the number one killer over heart attack, over stroke, over cancer. But I have seen patients turn around and stabilize and get to walk out the door. So what can you as the nurse do to promote the patient returning to homeostasis? First is early detection. So identifying early on when your patient is developing sepsis and notifying the team to get the appropriate diagnostics and interventions ordered. As far as orders to anticipate, know that you'll need to get two sets of blood cultures drawn, ideally before you start the first dose of antibiotics, and make that antibiotic administration a priority. Also expect the doctor to order and trend lactic acid to see how severely these cells have been deprived of oxygen. Those are really the only agreed upon things in the medical community. The rest is very debated, like fluid administration, for example. Definitely plan for some sort of fluid resuscitation. Most hospitals still use the 30 mLs per kilogram initial fluid bolus and possibly more if warranted, 
but I would not be surprised if this standard changes because sometimes the 30 mLs per kilogram is too much or too little for your patient depending on their weight and their comorbidities. It's not really a one-size-fits-all therapy. Additionally, it's hard to say if you have effectively treated the volume status because as you're giving volume, it's third spacing. And that is not like that's normal for sepsis. That's what you can expect to happen when the body is septic. So you've done nothing wrong if the patient starts at third space. But you may find that your patient develops peripheral edema and crackles in their lungs after fluid boluses. They can even appear to be fluid overloaded but they can still be intravascularly dry because all of their volume seeped out of their bloodstream into the interstitial space. Capillary refill and urine output can be great indicators of adequate perfusion if you don't have the patient hooked up to a hemodynamic monitor. I mean, let's be honest, it's far easier to recognize when your patient's cardiac output is dropping when you have a Swangens catheter in and can see all the numbers right in front of you. It takes an astute nurse to notice a change in the urine output and skin perfusion. That's some Florence Nightingale nursing right there. No fancy hemodynamic monitors, just your assessment skills and your intuition to guide you. Props again to Yesha. When patients in septic shock, or any shock for that matter, it's very helpful to have hemodynamic monitoring to know exactly what's happening with all the components of cardiac output, preload, afterload, and contractility. Without the ability to trend the hemodynamic values when the blood pressure drops, we really don't know if the drop is because the septic patient third spaced some of the volume off and we have a preload problem, or if they've vasodilated so much that we have an afterload problem, or a combination of the two. So we always start by treating volume first, hence the 30 mLs per kilogram initial bolus for septic patients. But there can come a point where it's not a volume issue anymore and the only way to safely improve blood pressure is to start a vasopressor. So like the patient that Yesha and I cared for, he was probably 50 kilograms. So a 30 ml per kilogram bolus for him would have been one and a half liters or 1500 mLs. And he was on his sixth liter. So while the boluses were improving his blood pressure while they were actually infusing, they were not effectively fixing the problem, which was his body's vasodilatory response to sepsis. He needed norepinephrine, which is a potent vasoconstrictor, to clamp down his vessels and get his blood pressure under control. One more little tidbit about fluid resuscitation and sepsis. It's important to choose the right fluid. Did you know that normal saline is actually not pH balanced? In fact, its pH is like 5 your body at perfect homeostasis will have a pH of 7.4. So you could potentially worsen your patient's acidosis by administering normal saline. The most pH balance would be plasmolite with a pH of 7.4. And the next best would be a more easily accessible option, lactated ringers, whose pH is about 6.75. Dr. Josh Farkas has a great post titled Fluid Selection and pH Guided Resuscitation, where he breaks down all the pros and cons of each fluid option. I would highly recommend checking it out, and I will link it in the show notes. So I think that just about covers most of the important things I'd want a bedside nurse to know to help guide you in recognizing sepsis and septic shock and what the initial interventions to expect prior to transfer to the ICU. But let's review them real quick. It's important 
to get a good baseline assessment on your patient so that when they have that mental status change or their skin gets paler or their pulse quality becomes weaker, you can recognize it as a change. And you can use surge criteria or QSO for score or whatever your hospital uses to guide you to remind you of some of the telltale signs of sepsis. And you can use this also to clearly communicate your concern to the physician. Between the two scores, the following data points are valuable to take note of and trend. Tachycardia, tachypnea, hypotension, temperature, either high or low, white blood cell count, again, either high or low, and mental status. Alterations in these can help point you towards the sepsis diagnosis. Next, the initial management of the septic patient should consist of some blood being sent to the lab with lactic acid, CBC, CMP, coags, and blood cultures being the most important in guiding the patient's care. Also, prioritize the antibiotic administration and the fluid boluses. But don't go crazy with the fluids. There should be a reassessment of the patient's perfusion after each bolus to see if it's helping or hurting. And when appropriate, push for lactated ringers as the evidence-based pH balance fluid of choice for volume resuscitating septic patients. And finally, I say this all the time, trust your intuition. Like Yesha said, she said, I didn't have a good feeling about this guy from the time I started my shift with him. If you don't have enough data to warrant a rapid response activation, phone a friend, your charge nurse, your bestie down the hall, the respiratory therapist, the ICU charge, the patient's physician, whatever resource that you trust, our patients get the best care when we tap into the power of the interdisciplinary team. Well, that's it for today's episode. If you like this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email with questions or comments, and it would mean so much if you could take a moment to write a review on iTunes, as this helps more listeners find this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport, so trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. You've been listening to the Rapid Response RN Podcast. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing, and your patient's care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponsernpodcast at gmail.com or on the Rapid Response RN Podcast Facebook page as well as the podcast website rapidresponsern.com.